I thought the uh, promise for today in our uh, faith checkbook was very appropriate. I hope everybody's got them a copy of that faith checkbook. It gives a wonderful promise for every day of the week. And uh, I think it was the, one of the old commentators said there's said that there's no better pillow than a promise, <laughs> the promises of God. And it's wonderful. That, you know, I hope everybody, do you have about uh, three or four or five promises that you sort of run to every time there's a crisis? I love Romans 8.28. All things work together for good. I take great comfort in that, don't you? As a believer, uh, that the Lord promises that everything that comes into our life uh, comes from His hand. I don't know who said it, but somebody once said that uh, all of our disappointments are his appointments. <laughs> uh, one, old, uh, one old preacher said that uh, sorrow, uh, was it? sorrow knocked at my door, faith answered, and no one was there. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> well, for a believer, the Lord didn't control these things. And uh, we, uh, these, some of these prophecies, uh, I, I love that uh, uh, um, Philippians 4, 6, be careful for nothing. Uh, is there anything that we ought to be worried about? No. We're gonna, uh, the only thing I'm worried about is sin. <laughs> sin and the devil. But um, look at this wonderful promise for today. This is in faith checkbook. Uh, but uh, Psalm 50, verse 15. What a magnificent promise this is. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. Call upon me, and that means to pray. When I pray, God promises to answer. Oh, thou that hearest prayer. In the day of trouble, we need to call on the Lord. Amen? <laughs> and he promises to deliver us. And we need to glorify him. But what a wonderful, wonderful promise that is. Did everybody get a copy now of the handout? Okay. I apologize. It looks a little ragged, but I was running out of ink in the uh, copy machine. But I think you can sort of figure out what it is. And um, I want to just maybe today, the next week, look and have a quick overview of the book of Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah was a young prophet, and uh, he, uh, his name uh, means the Lord or Jehovah remembers. And uh, God called Haggai and Zechariah two prophets to Israel. Uh, Israel was very, very discouraged. Uh, very apathetic uh, spiritually, and so it was a time of great discouragement. A group had come back under Cyrus. You remember this? About 538 B.C., Cyrus uh, did a very strange thing. It was the policy of the Assyrians to relocate people, move them out of their land, <laughs> and uh, yet he, uh, Cyrus, sent them back. About 150 years before Cyrus came into existence, God called him out and called his name and uh, called him his servant and so on. Well, Cyrus let uh, the Jews go back to rebuild the temple. So under Cyrus, about 538 B.C., about 50,000, a little tiny handful, a little remnant of Jews left uh, Cyrus and went back to uh, Jerusalem to rebuild the altar. And laid the foundation for the temple. 
Well, they became very apathetic. They got some opposition from the Samaritans in the land there and quit building. And uh, so they uh, were spiritually apathetic. Uh, some of the Samaritans in the land discouraged them. In fact, even appealed to uh, Darius, one of the Roman or one of the Rome or the uh, Persian emperors, and the the Persian emperor Cyrus has passed away now. This is the one that came along later, and they appealed to him, and he actually sent out an order to stop the building of the temple. And so, uh, for about twenty years, nothing was done, and uh, so God sent Haggai and uh, Zechariah to start preaching. And they stimulate the people to start resuming to resume building the uh, building the temple. So they finished the temple, uh, finished the altar, and so on. About 516 uh, B.C. Haggai uh, preached four messages in a four-month period, and it was a very strong messages of rebuke. <laughs> and uh, but this stimulated the people. They went back to work, started to rebuild the temple. Uh, Charles Swindoll said that uh, he felt that uh, Haggai was too negative. Now, I'm very leery of anybody that would criticize the Word of God like that, aren't you? The Holy Spirit was leading Haggai. And sometimes we need to preach rebuke. I, I don't know about you, I need good strong preaching. Uh, I need all the rebuke I can get. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and I need strong preaching, and I think you do too. Maybe some of you are a little more spiritual than I am, I don't know. And, uh, but he preached four messages in four months that stimulated the people to get back to work. They began rebuilding the temple and they finished the temple. And this was called the second temple. Zerubbabel's te uh, temple was called the second temple. You remember what happened to the, what happened to the first one? The first one was Solomon's <laughs> temple. Do you remember this? And uh, he, uh, who destroyed Solomon's temple? No, a little bit later now, they're going to destroy a temple. But who destroys uh, Solomon's temple? <laughs> the Babylonians, remember Nebuchadnezzar in 586. And uh, then uh, the second temple, the rebuilt temple, was Zerubbabel. When Cyrus uh, sent, uh, allowed the Jews, permitted the Jews to go back, 50,000 of them came, returned, a little handful really, and uh, Zerubbabel was their governor, and then Joshua was their high priest. So these 50,000 returned under Cyrus, under the leadership of Zerubbabel and of Joshua the high priest. And uh, so uh, they built the, the second temple. It was, called the, uh, it was called Zerubbabel's temple, and it was uh, very, uh, they, they sort of, uh, it was very uh, poor, very ragged, compared to Solomon's temple. And uh, they, they, Zerubbabel's temple, was uh, there was no glory in it, seemingly. It looked very uh, very poor. Uh, it was, uh, wasn't nearly as glorious as Solomon's temple. So some of the people held it in contempt, said this is, the, this is the day of small things. They despised the temple because it wasn't as glorious as Solomon's. And Herod's going to come along later now and add to it and make it uh, more beautiful, and so on, in, in his attempt to please the Jews. And who's going to destroy Zerubbabel's temple, what we call the second temple? That's going to be destroyed in 70 A.D. with the Romans, right? So now you got two temples. you got Solomon's, you got Zerubbabel's, and, Zerubbabel and Herod's, if you want to add his 
uh, additions to the temple to glorify it, make it much more beautiful. And the Romans destroyed it. When will the third temple come into existence? After the rapture, the Jews will be building the temple on the Temple Mount. That's why I think the Battle of Gog and Magog will be very, very soon after the signing of the treaty. The, uh, Allah, uh, Allah is uh, offended by the fact that the Jews even are in the land and certainly offended if they tried to build that temple on the Temple Mount. Uh, the uh, Islam has the Dome of the Rock there on the Temple Mount right now. And they hate the Jews. They, they're determined to drive the Jews into the sea. So I can't imagine the Temple, uh, the temple Mount, uh, the, the Islam, allowing the Jews to build a temple right next to the Dome of the Rock. Can you? Now I'm just I'm speculating. Uh, but it makes, makes good preaching, doesn't it? But I think that uh, the Battle of Gog and Magog uh, will, uh, will destroy the Russian army and destroy Islam, and that will permit them to build the temple, the temple on the Temple Mount. I just, I'm just speculating now. All right, now look up here. Let me, if you'll look up here, this is kind of a good summary of all Bible prophecy. When you study Isaiah, uh, Zechariah, uh, certainly the book of the Revelation, all these passages of Scripture are dealing somehow with this scenario here. Remember the rapture? Then shortly after the rapture, the treaty, that's actually begin to going to build the or start the uh, tribulation period, immediately when the treaty signed. The rapture does not begin the tribulation period. The treaty that Israel signs with Antichrist will begin the tribulation period. How, this may take uh, maybe a few weeks. Who knows, maybe a few months after the rapture. But Israel will sign a treaty with the Antichrist. And I think very soon after that, it's just my opinion, a lot of your uh, prophecy students believe that the Battle of Gog and Magog will take place over near the very end of the first three and a half years, maybe over in this time period. But uh, anyhow, in the, uh, in the book of the Revelation, I think the seals are going to be during the first three and a half years, then the trumpet judgments and the vile judgments will be in the second three and a half years. The second three and a half years is called the Great Tribulation. All right? But at the midpoint of the tribulation, that's when Satan will be cast out of heaven and the Jews will flee uh, and so on for uh, safety. All right? <clears throat> then now at the second coming, the, uh, at the end of the, uh, the Lord will come and destroy the enemies of Israel. And that uh, basically will be uh, Armageddon. It's really more of a campaign, I think, that sort of takes place during the whole three-and-a-half-year period. But uh, the Lord will destroy the enemies of Israel at the Battle of Armageddon. Okay? And then uh, when the Lord comes back, Israel as a nation will convert. Anybody remember how many Jews will be destroyed? What percentage or what fraction of the Jews will be destroyed during the tribulation period? All Jews. What fraction of them? You might know. Two-thirds, yeah. About two-thirds of the Jews will be destroyed. Some believers, some non-believers. But two-thirds of the Jewish population will be destroyed during the tribulation period. All right? When the Lord comes back at the second coming, they will look on him whom they have pierced and mourn for him. And that one-third that's left will be converted. Does all Israel be converted? That may mean every single Jew who's alive when the Lord comes back will be converted 
at the second coming. They'll look on him whom they have pierced, okay? Then those uh, saved Jews, those that are regenerate, Jews and Gentiles, all all those that are saved, all that are regenerate, will enter into the millennium. No unsaved people will enter into the millennium. It'll be converted Jews, converted Gentiles, and so on. All right? Near the end of the millennium, you'll have a second battle of Gog and Magog. Some people get those battles confused, but if you look at the context, those are two entirely different battles. You have a battle of Gog and Magog over in the beginning, I think, of the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Then another battle of Gog and Magog at the end of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. All right? All right. At the end of the millennium, remember, Antichrist will, uh, or the uh, rather, uh, Satan will uh, stimulate and organize an army against God himself. At the end of the millennium, God will destroy the enemy, Satan and his army, those rebels, uh, at the end of the uh, millennium. That's called the battle of Gog and Magog. God will destroy them with his breath and so on. All right? After the battle of Gog and Magog, that'll end the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. All right, immediately after that, you'll have the battle or the great white throne judgment where all the unregenerate will be judged. No, uh, no saved people now will be judged at the great white throne. It's all the unregenerate. Then after the great white throne, there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. The old earth will be destroyed by fire and so on. New heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem and uh, will come down and uh, that begins the eternal state. So when you're studying prophecy in Isaiah or Zechariah, the book of the Revelation, wherever you study it, it's dealing somehow with these events in this, tribu- in this period that we see here. Okay? Now look at your uh, handout. Did anybody get a handout? Mm-hmm. Oh, you got one? Oh. All right, everybody got one. Okay. Now look at your uh, look at your hand out just a minute. This is the uh, kind of the outline now. The first seven chapters of the book of Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah has been called the apocalypse of the Old Testament. Let's see if I can spell it here. I'm going to mess up, mess up here. Hawk. <laughs> the apocalypse. <laughs> I did I get it right? The, the apocalypse. I think you're right. Don't need, maybe don't need the H there. All right. Anyhow, phonetically, that sounds like apocalypse. All right. <laughs> so. Uh, Anybody know what that word means? They call the book of the Revelation the apocalypse. What's that word mean? Anybody know? Yeah, the revealing or the unveiling. God's uh, unveiling future events, uh, unveiling uh, uh, the uh, prophetic events of the future and so on. So apocalypse simply means an unveiling. We call the book of the Revelation an apocalypse. All right, we call... uh, the book of Zechariah, the apocalypse of the Old Testament, the unveiling, the revealing of God's plan and purpose for the ages and so on, his program for Israel. 
Okay? Now, Zechariah, uh, his name means Yahweh remembers. And the whole book is, a, is God's remembering Israel. And it's meant to be a book of uh, these sermons of uh, Zechariah. These visions are meant to be to encourage Israel. Now, Israel has come back. She's spiritually apathetic. She's discouraged. She's been discouraged by her enemies. Uh, the people are spiritually apathetic. They've quit building their temple, and they're building their own homes. They've forgotten, in many ways, forgotten about God. And, of course, that, uh, to forget God always leads to discouragement, does it not, and unhappiness. And so the people are very discouraged, very unhappy. And God, being the wonderful God that he is, he brings them a message of hope and comfort and uh, shows them what the future is. So that's what this little book is all about. It's the longest, by the way, of the minor prophets. How many minor prophets do we have? They're called minor because they're shorter than the four big major prophecies they call them. You've got 12 minor prophecies, four major prophets, and uh, Zechariah is the longest now of the minor prophets. But uh, this uh, little prophecy is uh, quoted 31 times in the book of the Revelation. You see how important this little book is. Quoted 31 times in the book of the Revelation. It's quoted 71 times in the New Testament altogether. You're probably not going to, you're not going to have a, a good grasp of prophecy unless you really understand this book. Uh, this uh, Daniel and Zechariah really lays the foundation for the book of the Revelation. There's going to be, you're going to have a difficulty understanding the book of the Revelation without understanding Daniel and understanding Zechariah. Okay? Now, in, uh, in 520 B.C., We believe this book was written. This is when God calls uh, Haggai and Zechariah. They're going to be contemporary with each other. And so about 520 B.C., uh, these men are going to begin preaching. And uh, they're going to uh, encourage the people of God, you know, going to encourage Israel, and uh, give them comfort and hope. There'll be a rebuke. Uh, look, first of all, turn to Zechariah if you're not there. Come to the first chapter. If you look at your handout now, what I've outlined here, or I haven't outlined this, this somebody else has outlined this. You have uh, you have uh, uh, seven or eight visions. Uh, some would debate whether the uh, what we call the investiture of uh, Joshua, uh, something that's not a vision. Now, most of the prophecy scholars consider this to be a vision. So you have seven or eight visions in these first seven chapters. But all these visions that you see, all seven or eight of them, have to do with, this, with uh, God, uh, the second coming, uh, the conversion of Israel, uh, God's blessing of the millennial blessing. It's utterly fascinating how much of the Word of God is concerned with the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. And uh, so uh, th this book and many of these prophecy books, Daniel and the rest, are concerned with these events right here, one way or the other. So Joshua is a type of Christ. Joshua the high priest that came back under Cyrus, came back with Zerubbabel as a picture or a type of, a, of a, Joshua the high priest is a type of Christ. 
uh, Zerubbabel is going to be the governor. So he, uh, gov uh, Zerubbabel is the governor. He, uh, con he's concerned with the politics. Uh, Joshua is the high priest. And that Old Testament, that church and state, in one sense, were separated. You had the governor and you had the high priest. You're not supposed to have the same man in the same combined in that office. You remember when uh, when uh, those men went ahead? Uh, uh, I'm going to blank on who the uh, king was. Now that went in and tried to offer the uh, offer the high uh, offer the uh, sacrifice, but uh, God rebuked him. Yeah, that was the role of the high priest. All right, and and Zubabel and Joshua the high priest, you have a picture of Christ. Christ will unite those two officers. Christ during the millennium will rule from Jerusalem, and he'll be both king and priest, will he not? Joshua and Zerubbabel are a type or a picture of that. So when you see these events, a lot of these things are just types and pictures of what's going on during the millennium. Christ will rule from Jerusalem. Uh, David will be his co-regent, most likely. There's a lot of debate over that. But uh, during the millennium, Christ will rule from Jerusalem. All the nations of the world will come to Jerusalem uh, to worship and to get advice from the king and from Christ and so on. And uh, I believe nations will exist uh, during this time period, I think, through the eternal state. For some reason, people want to destroy the whole concept of the, of the nation state. But I think the nation states will continue to exist. I think maybe perhaps even through eternity. But we know during this time period, all the nations will come to Jerusalem to worship Christ. And uh, during this time period, you'll have the millennial temple. So that'll be the fourth temple. The third temple will be rebuilt during the first part of the Great, Trib uh, the first part of the Great Tribulation. So you have four temples, the Temple of Solomon, the, temple, uh, the second temple of Zerubbabel, and the third temple will be built during the Great Tribulation period, and uh, Anna, uh, that'll, then, uh, that'll be uh, destroyed, and then uh, during the millennium, you'll have a, the fourth temple. So you have four temples altogether. All right? So, uh, but in here, look, come to the book of Zechariah. So in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, this is the Persian king now, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. So the first message now, the key to all blessing, is repentance. <laughs> so the first message preached now is going to be repentance. It's going to be a rebuke for Israel's uh, disobedience and rebellion. Therefore say thou unto them, thus saith the Lord, now the Lord's giving the message to Zechariah, the message he's to be preaching. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, turn ye unto me. Repent. Repentance is turning around. And so it's repentance, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. So now this whole book of Zechariah is meant to be a message of hope. And, uh, the, and God is uh, promising blessing and restoration. But must all, but before blessing comes, there first of all must be repentance. Amen? <laughs> Verse 4, Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried. All right, he's going to remind them of how the fathers rebelled and how they turned against God and, and why they lost God's blessing. 
and had to be driven from the land to be persecuted and so on. So this is where it begins. And then in these next seven uh, through chapter seven, you're going to, uh, in one night, Zechariah is going to get, uh, let's, just, let's just say it's going to be eight visions, all right? In one night, Zechariah will receive eight visions. And all these visions, some have to do with rebuke and so on, but most of them have to do with God's wonderful promises of blessing. God is going to bless these people. He's going to come back someday. Israel as, uh, will be converted. They'll look on him whom they have pierced. And they'll all enter into the millennium. And that Israel will be a nation to whom all the nations of the world will admire and will come and seek its blessing and its help and its advice. So during the millennium, uh, Israel will be the most important nation. and will be a nation that all the nations, other nations will look up to and uh, seek uh, Israel's uh, advice and direction and so on when the Lord's on the throne here. So all these prophecies now have to do with this, this blessing of the millennium in one sense. Okay? <clears throat> I think the key verse is Zechariah 4.6. I think it was Dwight L. Moody that before he preached, he always kept his uh, finger uh, on this verse of Scripture. Zechariah 4, 6, let's go over there, just look at this key verse, and then we'll come back here, all right. 4, 6, the key verse, Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. The immediate context is, what are they going to need to get back to building this temple? Well, they need the power of the Holy Ghost. They're going to be energized and inspired to rebuild this temple. So that's the immediate context. But uh, that's true for every aspect of the Christian life, is it not? It's not by might nor by power, but it's by the Holy Spirit. So I think this verse is sort of the key verse to the whole book. But anyhow, these are visions now. Eight visions of comfort, of hope also uh, revealing God's future plan to bless the nation and to give it comfort and strength, all right? Now look at, um, look at the uh, number one. You see you have the visions here, vision one, vision two, vision three. And if you look in the middle of the uh, graph, the chart is the lampstand and olive trees. That's this uh, author who put this together calls this the fourth vision. Uh, some would say it's the fifth vision. And for our purpose, let's just stick with this handout, all right, for the time being. And then you see uh, number five, a vision of the flying scroll. Number six, the woman in the ephah, or big basket. And then you see the messengers bringing judgment, and then there's a postscript. And then, uh, so, uh, and then you come to chapter seven and eight. And seven and eight, in chapter seven, you have a delegation come from the city of Bethel. And Bethel is a, is a little city about 12 miles north of Jerusalem. And uh, this little delegation, they're, uh, they're tired of uh, fasting. Uh, it's really, it's been an empty ritual anyhow. It's useless. But they come to consult uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua. So look, do we need to continue these priests? Now that you, uh, or these feasts, or these <laughs> fastings, do we need to continue these fastings? And, you know, the temple's been built, the altar's been uh, rebuilt, 
do we need now uh, to uh, continue these fastings? And so that's kind of what 7 and 8 is all about. Then in chapter 8, God gives Israel 10 very wonderful, wonderful promises. In chapter 8 of the book of Zechariah. So uh, look at this, uh, chapter 1, I'm sorry, uh, vision 1, a patrol report of the world at rest. Uh, here we see uh, a very strange picture. We see a rider on a red horse. And this is probably the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord. When you see that, that usually means the pre-incarnate Christ. And so here we see this rider on a red horse among the myrtle trees in sort of a little rift or valley. And uh, he sends out the other riders and they sort of... Uh, uh, sort of a, a reconnaissance mission of the whole earth. And we find the whole earth is at peace uh, except for Israel. And God demonstrates great anger towards these nations the way they've treated Israel. Edom and, uh, and uh, Babylon and all these other nations have mistreated Israel through all, all through history. And uh, so anyhow, that's what that vision is about. All right. You have a, a, a red horse, a brown horse, a white horse. And uh, some of the prophecy students like to kind of speculate what these colors mean. I don't know if they mean anything or not. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, and then you see the uh, second vision of the horns and the craftsmen. When you see the word horn, that speaks of power. A horn, you see the, the horn uh, on the altar speaks, of, the, all these things speak of power. And uh, so you see uh, here, two, you see the horns and the craftsmen. And uh, these are going to be, uh, these are going to be, uh, you can see the judgment on the nations. God is going to judge these nations uh, for the way they've treated Israel. And then you see a, you see the, uh, those four nations, by the way, again, we're not sure what those four nations are. I tend to think it's the four nations that uh, Daniel prophesied about. Assyria, and then the uh, Babylonians. And then the third uh, nation, the, the Greek nation, the nation of Greece under the leadership of Alexander, and then later on his uh, four generals, and then, of course, Rome. So I think the four nations there are those four great world empires. And, of course, God's going to bring a terrible judgment on these nations someday. Then you see the measuring of kind of an unusual vision three is, a, is a, an angel measuring out Jerusalem. But out of measuring rod and measuring Jerusalem. Well, you measure things when you get ready to reconstruct and rebuild, do you not? So here God is promising the reconstruction, the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Now, how these replacement theologians uh, can come to the conclusion that God has taken the blessing from Israel is beyond me. Uh, all through, uh, you, you've got to destroy so much scripture and allegorize and uh, bring types and all these things and spiritualize all these things. You've got to spiritualize and allegorize so much of the Bible. I just, you know, it's almost removing these things from the Word of God. Uh, these, uh, God promises the restoration of Israel about 15, 20 times there in, those, in Genesis and Exodus. Well, anyhow, again, this is another proof to me that God is going to physically restore Jerusalem and, uh, and re restore Israel to the land. All right. So anyhow, this is going to be, uh, Israel is going to be rebuilt, rebuilt uh, literally and for eternity. And then you see the, uh, now look at the number four. Some like to say this is a vision, but here we see basically uh, the, uh, 
Joshua, the high priest, being what we call being invested with the office of the high priest. Now again, this is a type or a picture of Christ. When you see Joshua, the high priest, is a type of Christ, a picture of Christ. And, the, and this typifies the future of Christ when he uh, takes this, the throne in, in, on Jerusalem in the millennial period. All right? But anyhow, you see it's the angel of the Lord, uh, a, 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 I think an incarnate Christ. Joshua here is identified as the servant. He's identified as the branch. Why is uh, Messiah called the branch? He's called the stone. Remember the stone that the builders rejected? He's called a servant. When he came down from heaven's glory, he became a servant, made himself a slave, did he not in one sense, and even died the death of the slave. But he's called, why is he called a branch? Okay, he's a descendant of David. He's sort of a branch from the generation from the generation of David. So he's called the branch, he's called the stone, he's called the servant. You see some of these typified in, the, in Joshua, this high priest. All these things now are prophecies about the future of these events right here. <clears throat> okay. So <clears throat> now we come to, come to the uh, lampstand in the middle. This is some artist's conception of it. We don't actually know what, the, what it looks like. As you read the description of this, <clears throat> of this lampstand, it's really kind of very hard to figure out what all it means. So this is somebody's rendition of what they think it might have looked like to some degree, all right? But now that lampstand is made of gold, and it's meant to typify Israel. And that lampstand, what's its ultimate purpose? is to give light. And so the oil that provides, the oil that provides, uh, that is burned to give the light. And so Israel is meant to be a light to the world. Israel failed and failed miserably. But when will Israel fulfill that wonderful plan that God has for it to be a light to the world? In this millennium, right? Israel then will fulfill that plan that God, uh, that purpose that God has for it to be a uh, this to be a light to the world. All the nations of the world will come to Jerusalem uh, to worship and to glorify uh, Israel, to glorify Christ, and so on. But now Israel was a miserable failure, was she not, throughout history? <laughs> Israel uh, apostatized and rebelled against God. And that's why some people say, well, that's why they, they, the land was forfeited. Their rebellion, their apostasy, caused God to remove that promise, that blessing. But they, they can't inherit the land because of their apostasy. They rebelled against God, so God took that wonderful promise, that wonderful privilege from them, from Israel and gave it to the church. All right, now by that same uh, reasoning, could you not remove the, the Davidic promise? What was the Davidic promise? The promise of the seed. What did God promise David? Yeah, that Christ, yeah, he would be, uh, the, uh, the, the Messiah would come through him and it would be forever. Did, did David ever do anything wrong? All right, if you're going to disqualify Israel for its wickedness and apostasy you, by that same uh, reasoning, you need to disqualify David from uh, having the me messianic seed, do you not? Why do you pick and choose what parts of that uh, Abrahamic covenant you're going to, God's going to keep and not keep? If God, God promised Israel, regardless of what she does, God promised David that too, didn't he? 
Now you can uh, you can rebel and you can sin and uh, you'll you'll re- lose blessing and you'll be judged. But uh, you'll be uh, the Messiah. You'll uh, the Messiah will come to the throne regardless of what you do. Your descendant, Christ, your descendant, will come to the throne regardless of what you do. Uh, David uh, was guilty of premeditated murder, was he not? And yet God didn't take that uh, seed promise from him. The Messiah will still be on the throne. David's descendant, right? <clears throat> All right. But look at that lampstand now. If, uh, if you read the description there, it'll be a Zerubbabel will be an olive tree, and Joshua will be an olive tree, and they'll be, be beside the lampstand. And so God is going to, the point is that this lampstand is the source of light, the source of power, uh, that oil is a type of the Holy Spirit. So Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest will be spirit-filled. God will empower them to complete the temple, right? And so, but they're pictures, they're types of Christ. So unite those two offices. Christ will be both a king like Zerubbabel, and he'll be a priest like Joshua. So in Christ, church and state will be mixed together. The king and the priests will have the same office, hold the same office. But uh, I don't think those offices ought to be combined until the millennium. When we have Jesus Christ, the righteous priest and the righteous judge who will rule righteously as king and priest. A lot of our problems today is a mixing of church and state together, is it not? We've got Caesar demanding that which belongs to God. My children don't belong to Caesar, they belong to God. Uh, My tithe doesn't belong to Caesar, it belongs to God. But Caesar thinks he ought to own your children and he ought to own your wealth and tell you how to spend your money, right? <laughs> well, we, uh, this thing of mixing church and state has caused tremendous problems. Well, all right, but that's what that lampstand, that's the vision of the, of the power of God. Then quickly, the flying scroll and the woman of Ephah. That's basically what God is saying. I'm going to remove, I'm going to remove sin and apostasy from Israel. When she gets saved at the second coming, God's going to cleanse Israel of her sin, right? He's going to cleanse Israel of her apostasy. And that flying scroll is a picture of sin. It rebukes the sin of stealing and the sin of, uh, of uh, uh, profaning God's name and so on, idolatry. Uh, and uh, so God is going to remove the sins of Israel, her apostasy, her idolatry, her stealing. Those two sins represent the sins of Israel. God's going to remove that, that flying scroll, about 30 feet by 15 feet on both sides, uh, is describing the sin that God will remove. It'll fly, he'll take it away, it'll fly away. <laughs> and then the, uh, the a very strange picture, there's a big uh, a barrel, we'll call it a barrel, like the Lord God calls it an ether here. It's an unusual size in it, there's a woman put inside of it. Then there's a golden, uh, a lead cover put on it. And they're going, to, uh, they're going to put this woman in this barrel with the lid cover and send it off to Babylon. And so God's going to remove false religion and, uh, and uh, apostasy from the land. When he comes, when Israel gets sin, he's going to remove their sin. He's going to remove the apostasy. And he's going to transfer it over to Babylon, where Babylon is the type or the picture of all human sin and humanism. And all that rebellion against God, is it not? So the flying scroll and the ephah 
It's simply saying God's going to remove sin from Israel, remove apostasy, and he's going to center it, then move it over to Babylon, where I guess it belongs in one sense. All right? And so then you see the, uh, the messengers, you see the four chariots coming out between the two bronze mountains, and these again, are, these are messengers of judgment. God's going to bring terrible, terrible judgment on those nations that persecuted Israel. In chapter 7, you see the, the, the delegation from Bethel that come and question about whether, they, whether or not they need to keep fasting. Then in chapter 8, you see again this great message of encouragement. Ten wonderful promises that, that God gives to Israel. All right, well, we got through it, didn't we? Okay, let's all bow our heads and we'll be dismissed.